Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth Episode 7, Justinian, Part 1 Welcome back. We ended the last lecture with the remarkable reign of Zeno, who should have been the last Byzantine emperor, but instead was somehow able to survive, and at his death left the throne far stronger than he had found it. A stunning achievement for someone who was unpopular to begin with, and who at one point had to sneak in disguise from his own capital to avoid being killed. He had staved off collapse, but only just. In fact, the dispassionate observer would probably not have placed too many bets on the empire's continued survival. The West was in ruins, lost to the shifting Gothic kingdoms whose allegiance was in name only. Enemies were all around, barbarians to the West, and to the East Persia, Rome's ancient enemy rumbling once again towards a chronic and inevitable war. Internally, there was more stability, but the old problems were there too. A tax system which bled the poor, but didn't touch the rich. A system of law that was contradictory, complex, and corrupt. And as always, the volatility of the great unwashed masses just waiting for doctrinal unrest or popular revolt. And yet, somehow, Only 27 years after Zeno's death, the most splendid of all Byzantine emperors would arise, with a virtual explosion of power, conquest, and culture, in the most universally brilliant period of Byzantine history. It was in many ways similar to the Renaissance, condensed into one reign, with a confluence of great minds and personalities in virtually every arena. It not only saw a dazzling emperor and empress, it saw the greatest legal mind, the greatest historian, the greatest architect, and the greatest general of the age. But this cultural revolution, this Byzantine renaissance, was driven by one man whose tireless work ethic gave him the nickname the emperor who never sleeps. And it is to Justinian, and Justinian alone, that much of the credit, as well as the blame, is due for what was accomplished in his reign. I suppose it's only fair to tell you that Justinian is my favorite Byzantine emperor. There's something endearing in the story of a man who couldn't help dreaming larger than other men. You get the feeling that Justinian would say, if you're going to fail, fail grandly. He wasn't just going to live in the world. He was going to change it. First, however, he had to become emperor, a rank he was to obtain during the reign of the emperor Justin. Justin's story is one of the great rags-to-riches tales. He came to Constantinople with no more than the clothes on his back, trying to escape the grinding poverty of his homeland. And through a mix of luck and ability, he eventually rose to become commander of the palace guard under the emperor Anastasius I. This was a very powerful position, mostly because it controlled the only real troops in the city. Thanks to this, after old Anastasius died, and the usual quarrel over the succession arose, he was in a perfect position to take advantage of it. With a few troops marching up and down the Hippodrome, and some liberal spending, five coins and one pound of silver per soldier, he was able to secure his election as emperor. The only problem was that he was nearly 70, and as a career military man had little practical knowledge of how to run the state. To make up for these shortcomings, he surrounded himself with trusted advisors and experts, the most prominent of which was his nephew Flavius Petrus Sabatius. Born in modern-day Karasingrad, Yugoslavia in 483 during the reign of Zeno, Sabatius had shown himself to be a man of extraordinary ability. Justin, to his great credit, recognized this from a young age and provided the finest education for his nephew. 
paying for the best tutors in law, theology, and especially history. He then officially adopted Petrus, who took the name Justinian in his uncle's honor. It's hard to say exactly how much power Justinian wielded during his uncle's reign. Technically, he wasn't appointed co-emperor until the year before Justin's death, but most historians, both contemporary and ancient, date his effective control of government from much earlier. Some, in fact, have even suggested that Justin's election to the throne was due in large part to Justinian's machinations. Whatever the truth, he was certainly powerful from an early age. By 521, for example, only three years into the reign, we find Justinian writing to the Pope and referring to the empire as our state, indicating at the very least an exclusive right to act as his uncle's mouthpiece. Justinian was appointed consul and master of the eastern armies in quick succession, and he seems to have split his time between these official duties and cheering on his favorites in the Hippodrome. Every city in the empire had its chariot racing factions that took their name from the colors they would wear, blue or green. By the 6th century, they had a dominant part in Byzantine society, with an increasing importance far beyond mere entertainment, with leaders appointed by the emperor and often performing civic functions, like being in charge of the militia or maintaining certain guilds. They were very loosely associated with certain religious and socioeconomic views. Greens tended to favor industry, trade, and the civil service, and to be monophysite, which stated that Christ was divine, not human. Blues, on the other hand, were the party of big landowners and the old Greco-Roman aristocracy, and tended to be orthodox. Justinian was a lifelong supporter of the Blues, and used them as an informal network to obtain information about possible threats in the city. One of his blue informers, a star ballet dancer named Macedonia, introduced Justinian to a young actress named Theodora. She was beautiful, beguiling, but most importantly, an ardent supporter of the blues. It was an inspired match. Theodora's prodigious energy matched his own, and they seemed to have accepted each other as intellectual equals right from the start. Madly in love, Justinian was determined to marry her. At the moment, however, that was out of the question. Though she had changed her ways, an actress in 6th century Constantinople was the equivalent of a prostitute, and their relationship scandalized polite Byzantine society. Not that that overly troubled Justinian, he was more concerned with the practical issue of a law forbidding a patrician from marrying below his station. He put pressure on his uncle to repeal the law, but unexpectedly ran into problems with the old empress Euphemia. She doted on her nephew, but was bitterly opposed to the undignified match. At first glance, this seems a bit odd. After all, she too had come from humble origins. She was born a slave and had been a concubine before Justin had bought and married her. Perhaps because she was of such low birth, she jealously guarded the dignity of her new station. In any case, it was only after she died in 523 that Justinian was able to arrange for the repeal of the law, and the same year he married Theodora in a magnificent ceremony that hinted of great things to come. The new couple could hardly have been more different than the old emperor. Both young, Justinian was in his 40s and Theodora in her 20s. They seemed a breath of fresh air, with dashing good looks and unlimited possibilities. When Justin died of an old war wound on August 1st, 527, Justinian was crowned in an extravagant ceremony that promised an end to the stingy days of his immediate predecessors. Where Justin had been relatively uneducated, Justinian was a subtle theologian, a good jurist, and steeped in the classics. Where Justin had been frugal and conservative, Justinian was lavish and a bold visionary. Where Justin planned modest religious buildings, 
Justinian built monumental public works designed to last through all the ages. The message could not have been clearer. The empire stood on the brink of a new and glorious age, where it would regain and even surpass all of its former glory. But first he needed money. Anastasius and Justin had tended to be penny pinchers and had left the imperial treasury full, but Justinian had already shown himself to be a liberal spender. Aside from the largesse he distributed upon becoming emperor and the extravagant games he put on to celebrate his consulship, 3,700 pounds of gold spent on the decorations, he was already planning a massive building program in conjunction with military campaigns to reconquer lost territory. All this had to be paid for somehow, and Justinian found the perfect solution in a man named John of Cappadocia. John had little education and was completely devoid of any charm, but Justinian knew his man. Unable to be bribed or bought, he streamlined the tax system, forcing the rich and powerful to pay as much as the poor. He centralized the government's authority and led a personal crusade against corruption. Unfortunately, while efficient, none of this made the government more popular particularly because John was also a drunkard and a glutton who wouldn't hesitate to torture someone who he thought was holding out on him. His brutal methods and debauched lifestyle soon made him the most despised man in the empire. As one contemporary writer put it, he left behind to the wretched inhabitants of the country not a single vessel of any kind. Neither was there any wife, any virgin, or any youth free of defilement. While the people of the empire grumbled, Justinian was busy with a new project. He had met an extraordinary lawyer named Tribonian, whose wit and charm were only surpassed by his vast encyclopedic knowledge of murky Roman law. Here was the perfect man for a new, typically ambitious project. Roman law was a chaotic morass of nearly a thousand years of confusing, often contradicting precedent, which, to make matters worse, wasn't written down in one place. Justinian, a scholar himself, now aimed at a complete recodification of the law, removing all the repetitions and contradictions, and making sure the end result was a clear, concise, and compatible with Christianity. It was a Herculean task, and Tribonian attacked it with relish. He also moved with astonishing speed. In a mere 14 months, he published the new Codex, the supreme authority for every court in the land, and the basis of most European legal systems today. But Tribonian was just getting started. In the next five years, he published two works, The Digest and The Institutes, which for the first time incorporated the principal writings of the ancient Roman jurists into the legal system. All told, he condensed 2,000 treaties and over 3 million verses into a mere 50 books. It was a stunning achievement, but it came with a cost. Tribonian, although charming and cultured, was completely and utterly corrupt. In unabashed pagan, each day he would happily repeal or propose a law, depending on who had bribed him. For the population of the city, to be cheated out of a lawsuit that they should have won certainly stung. To have a pagan be responsible was that much worse. Before long, Tribonian was the second most hated man in the empire, and a growing number of people began to clamor for his dismissal. With the population of the city thus at a boil and getting more deeply dissatisfied every day, Violence between the blues and the greens spilled out into the streets with greater frequency. Justinian, not willing to show outright support for the blues, and anyway, no longer needing their support, cracked down on both factions, limiting their privileges. This failed to stop the violence, however, and on January 10, 532, after a race in the Hippodrome, the two groups started fighting. 
Justinian sent in the troops without any hesitation. They arrested seven of the ringleaders, both blues and greens, and hanged them. Five of them died, but the scaffold broke and some monks from a nearby monastery rescued the other two. The commander of the guard, not wanting to break into the sacred building, decided to starve them out. This proved to be a mistake as the two men, one a blue and one a green, soon had plenty of supporters who noisily demanded their release. They appealed directly to Justinian, but he simply ignored the entire episode, hoping that tempers would cool and the incident would be forgotten in the excitement of the next games in the Hippodrome. Three days later, when he entered the imperial box, he was greeted with the terrifying sight of 30,000 blues and greens all screaming a single word, Nika, over and over again. The word meant win, and the two factions would usually shout it at each other, followed by the name of their favorite charioteer. To hear these bitter rivals united and directing their voices at him was horrifying. The games began but failed to ease the tension and were soon abandoned. Justinian, by this time seriously alarmed, fled to the palace while the crowd boiled out into the streets bent on destroying everything they could find. Their first object was to release all the prisoners being held in the city. Then they looted and burned every church or palace they could force their way into. The two greatest churches, St. Irene and St. Sophia, were burned completely to the ground, and most of the houses along the main roads were reduced to smoking ruins. The next day, the mob made its way back to the Hippodrome, where they demanded the immediate dismissal of John of Cappadocia and Tribonian. Justinian, now near panic, granted their request immediately, but this only encouraged them further, and by the next day they were calling for a new emperor. Their choice was a nephew of the old emperor Anastasius named Probus. He, however, had no desire to be emperor and had fled the city as soon as he got wind of their plans. The mob angrily burned his house in frustration and returned to the Hippodrome. There Justinian, in an act of bravery, met them and took full responsibility for the troubles and promised a full amnesty for anyone who would return quietly to their homes. It was brave but futile. The mob had found a new favorite, another nephew of Anastasius named Hypatius, Hypatius didn't want to be emperor any more than Probus did, and he quite sensibly hid under his bed when the mob came to get him. They, however, were not to be denied, and carried the terrified old man back to the Hippodrome on their shoulders, where they crowned him with a golden necklace and sat him in the imperial box. Justinian, meanwhile, was hastily meeting with his advisors. Feeling that the situation was now beyond their control, they urged him to flee the city immediately. Theodora, however, interrupted with an eloquent speech. I do not care, she said, whether or not it is proper for a woman to give brave counsel to frightened men. But in moments of extreme danger, conscience is the only guide. Every man who is born into the light of day must sooner or later die, and how can an emperor ever allow himself to become a fugitive? If you, my lord, wish to save your skin, you will have no difficulty in doing so. We are rich, there is the sea, there too are our ships. But consider first whether when you reach safety, you will not regret that you did not choose death in preference. As for me, I stand by the ancient saying, the imperial purple makes the best shroud. After a speech like that, there could be no question of running away. Fortunately, three of the empire's best generals happened to be in the capital. The first, Mundus, had a large contingent of Scandinavian mercenaries with him, and the second, Narses, an elderly, deceptively frail-looking Armenian eunuch, was commander of the imperial bodyguard. Lastly, and most importantly, there was Belisarius, only in his twenties and already perhaps the most brilliant tactician in Roman history. 
He quickly devised a plan, and the three commanders took separate routes to the Hippodrome. Once there, they burst in on the howling mob, taking them completely by surprise. Narses positioned his men at the exits, ensuring that there was no escape. In the end, over 30,000 were killed. Even the terrified Hypatius wasn't spared. He was brought before Justinian, who felt sorry for the old man and was about to pardon him, when Theodora intervened, pointing out that he had served as the focus for a rebellion. He couldn't be allowed to live, lest it happen again. Justinian, as always, bowed to her will and had him executed. The Nika Revolt, as it came to be called, was a turning point in Justinian's reign. Within a short period of time, he felt secure enough to reinstate both Tribonian and John the Cappadocian, but he curbed their more flagrant abuses, trying always to consider their effects on the city. His taxation was still harsh, but fair. The populace was also chastened. Anastasius and Justin had been rather easygoing. Justinian had shown that he was not to be pushed around. Emperors, it seemed, were not made and unmade as easily as they had thought. It was a lesson they would not soon forget. Never again would popular revolt threaten the stability of his reign. It was all Justinian could have asked for. Much of the capital lay in smoldering ruins, but instead of seeing this as a disaster, he characteristically saw it as the perfect opportunity. He would rebuild the city on a grand new scale, transforming it as he would transform the empire into something worthy of his vision. To that end, he devoted the remainder of his life, and with the help of three men, two architects and a general, he largely succeeded. Join me next time as I talk about the apogee of Justinian's reign, the building of the world's largest and most beautiful religious building, and the extraordinary career of the empire's most brilliant and tragic general, Belisarius, who fulfilled Justin's dream of epic reconquests. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.